0: everything. And so this morning I want to talk to you again about attitude, part three of our series. If you have your Bibles, open to the book of Haggai, the Old Testament. That's between Zephaniah and Zechariah, page 967. We 've all no doubt been have gone out to eat in a nice restaurant or enjoyed a nice meal out and 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 when you do so typically we expect to leave um, a tip isn't that true to the to the food server to the waiter the waitress what 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 kind of tip typically do you expect to leave from your of your bill? Percentage-wise? 15? 20? Yeah, it's, it used to be 10, but now it's up to 20, isn't it? How many food, do we have any food servers here? Uh, people who are waiters or waitresses? A couple? Okay, so you guys expect on a, on a, in a good place. Where do you work? Sizzler. Sizzler both of you? Okay, so if we were to come into Sizzler, if I were to come into Sizzler, you would certainly expect at least 20%, right? Yeah, I think, I think it's reasonable that we all expect to, to leave a nice gratuity, a nice tip to our server, and especially if the service is excellent. The question is, when we suggest a minimum of 10% to God... Why is there so much grumbling? Why do some people seem horrified? We go out to eat, we leave. The, but is there is there a, a disparity there? Do you think? Now, what's the point? I want to I want to address this issue of financial problems, financial difficulties. <clears throat> Anybody here ever experienced financial difficulties? Okay. They're hard to ignore, aren't they? And yet sometimes we do try to ignore them. We try to pretend like they don't exist. Even, in fact, laugh them away. Because sometimes it can be so painful and so difficult. But there is nothing funny about financial problems. There's nothing funny, certainly, about financial stress. Lots and lots of people get stressed because of these kinds of things. Someone wisely once said, Too often, we spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't like. (laughs) There's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? Someone else said, When our outgo exceeds our income, then our upkeep will become our downfall. Think about that. See, there's nothing funny about living with financial pressure and financial stress There's nothing enjoyable about living with bills, burdens, and certainly the bondage of debt. And yet the majority of people today do live under the bondage of continual financial pressure, difficulty, stress, and the miserable, miserable debt. Now the question is, how do we solve our financial problems? Well, before we can solve the financial problems, we need to know some information. One piece of information that's significant is we need to know who is behind our financial problems. Who's responsible for the financial mess that we're in? Who do you think? We are? Okay. Well, when when I tell you the answer, you're going to really be surprised. Once we know who's behind our financial problems, then we're going to discover how we can actually solve those financial problems. Now, make no mistake about it. We do have a significant role in our own financial problems through the choices we make. But there's somebody else still yet behind those problems And you'll be surprised to know it's not your husband and it's not your wife. (laughs) You suppose that, uh, that Satan would like us in over our heads financially? Burdened, stressed? Oh, absolutely. And that's true, but even as true as that is, he's not the one responsible for our financial problems. The shocking reality is this. It's God. God is behind our financial problems. Here's the irony of it. You and I can get out of our financial problems anytime we want. Any time we want. But we have to choose to do it God's way. Have you ever known people who always seem to have one financial calamity after another in their life? You know, it's like, it's like people that, that you know seem to be accident-prone. They just seem to have accident after accident after accident. And, and there are people, it seems like, they, they have one financial calamity after another. If, if this isn't breaking down, that's breaking down. Uh, something happens to the car. Uh, any number of things. And you look at them, you say, Gosh, they... Are they predestined to have financial problems for their entire life? It seems like that's the case. And we can be tempted to think that, but that's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that anyone is predestined to be in financial trouble for their entire life. We have the power to choose. God has given us this magnificent gift, this ability to choose. You and I can choose to have a life that is drastically different from the life that other people choose. Think about that. We can actually choose to have a life that's different from other people. I've tried to teach my son over the years some some just simple principles and truths. <clears throat> I told him that if you'll always do what others won't, you'll always get what others don't. If you'll always do what others won't, you'll always get what others don't. Or you can rephrase it. I I, have told them this, I said, don't do what you're tempted to do. (laughs) Do what you're tempted not to do. Those have been very, very helpful to me in my life. And so I want to pass them on. That's true also for finances. If we'll make the right choices in our life and do what other people are not willing to do, If we'd be willing to follow God and trust Him when it comes to finances, we will get in our lives what other people will never, ever experience. The tragedy is, more often than not, the financial problems that come into our lives are merely the result of the fact that we choose not to do things God's way. It's as simple as that. We make sinful and foolish choices. That's where I want you to turn to the book of Haggai. In Haggai, we read about God's people experiencing a number of problems. And the problems were a direct result of their ignoring God, specifically ignoring the things of God, even worse, the very house of God. They were putting their own desires first, and they were ignoring God. Look at verses 1 and 2, chapter 1 of Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Now keep that in mind. They've made a decision. It's not time to do anything for God yet. Think about that. Do we know people who say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not ready. The call is on their life. Become involved. We've been talking about uh, fellowship and community and mini-church and ministry. We've been talking about evangelism. And yet how many people say, no, no, not yet. I don't want to be involved in building God's house. I've got other things to do. My things. When God calls us to participate in the building of his house. Now, what's his house? We're not just talking about a physical building. We're talking about what? The the church. Listen to what they say. They've made this decision. It's not time. I'm not ready. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai again verses three through five. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways in other words, you need to wake up and pay attention to your priorities. if you're not involved in in building and working and serving God and doing his priorities and it's your priorities you better give careful thought to your ways he says now watch what's about to happen the problems are about to start mounting up verse six you planted much but have harvested little you eat but never have enough you drink but never have your fill you put on clothes but are not warm you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it He's saying, in effect, like little gerbils in a cage running round and round and round in a circle. It doesn't matter what they do, nothing really changes. They work harder, they plant more seed, they do more stuff, and yet it seems as if they have nothing and aren't getting anywhere. Does that remind you of anybody? Something's going on here. What's going on? Why, Why can't we seem to get ahead? Why can't we seem to make any progress? We keep working harder and harder. Someone says, well, work smarter. Well, I try to work smarter, but I'm still not making any progress. Look at verses 7 and 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful attention, careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down the timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. See, it's all about honoring God. It's all about committing our way to Him. It's all about being faithful to what He calls us to. So God says, build me a house. You recall Jesus' words when He was still a young boy, when He was in, found in Jerusalem, and His parents had to go back and, and, and look for Him. They thought He was lost, and, and they find Him in the temple. And what does He say as a 12-year-old boy? I must be about my father's business at 12 years old. How many Christians at 50 are still not about the Father's business? It's about their business. It's about their agenda. It's about their wants and desires. you suppose God's serious about this? Absolutely. Look at verse 9. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. I, I had this conversation with somebody not too long ago. They said, I, I had so many, hope, so, much, so many hopes for my life. Life hasn't turned out the way I'd hoped. It hasn't, my life hasn't turned out the way I thought. It's, just, it's, it's not what I hoped. Lots of people live with regrets. Lots of people today. And that's what he's saying. He says, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home... I blew away. Wow. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house or affairs. Get the picture? They worked hard. They strategized well. They planned carefully. They said, we're going to be all right. We're going to have a great harvest. Things are going to be great. Everything's going to be wonderful. But in verse 9... God says, what you brought home, I blew away. Have you ever gone home, opened your wallet or your pocketbook or your purse and said to yourself, where's all the money gone? (laughs) More month left at the end of the month. Where did it happen? I make a good living. What happened to all the money? Did you know that the Bible says that money, money can sprout wings and fly away? Literally. Proverbs 23.5 says, Cast but a glance at riches, or uh, the New American Standard puts it this way, When you set your eyes on riches, uh, they're gone, for surely they will sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Man, it's here today and gone tomorrow. It's hard to hold on to it. Why? Why? Verse 9. Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, look at verses 10 and 11. Because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I call for a drought on the fields, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces on men and cattle and on on the labor of your hands. God says, you have your priorities all messed up. You put yourself first, not me. So I shut it all down. Do you know that God can do that? God has the power to shut things down. Just shut them right down. When you and I get our priorities out of order, when we put all these other things and ourselves first before Him, He'll shut us down. You ever felt frustrated about your life? Frustrated about progress? Frustrated about things don't seem to fall in place? Frustrated, frustrated. Frustrated. I think that's, that's an example of God shutting things down. Work hard, try to make it happen, try to... Nothing seems to work. Our financial problems, I believe, are the result of God simply getting our attention. Think about that. Every time you and I put ourselves first and Him last, we're headed for trouble. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. Jesus talks about our priorities in Matthew's gospel. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't worry about anything else. He says, I'll take care of all this other stuff. I'll take care of it. But we put all the other stuff first, typically, rather than putting the kingdom of God and his righteousness first. And the kingdom of God seems to come way down on our list of priorities, if the truth be known. Financial problems are to us, they are to our families, they are to our businesses, even to the church. Financial problems are a wake-up call. They are just like pain sensors in our physical body. How many are grateful for pain sensors? Do you know that pain is meant to be redemptive? If we didn't have pain sensors, you put your hand on a hot stove... And, and, and you would not know to get your hand off the stove, right? Thank God for pain sensors. They're given to us to keep us from destroying ourselves, destroying our bodies. You put your hand on a hot stove, if you, didn't, if you couldn't feel the pain, you'd just fry your hand. Now, why anybody would put their hand on a hot stove in the first place doesn't make sense, but kids do that, don't they? <laughs> don't touch that, that's hot. Warning lights, pain sensors are like the warning lights on the dashboard of our car. Pay attention to the warning lights. Ever since I taught my wife how to drive, <laughs> I said, "See all these little lights up here? Pay attention to them." She said to me one day, "She says I have a funny light on in my car." I said, "How long has it been on?" I don't know. <laughs> Pay attention to the warning lights. Because those warning lights, our pain sensors, and financial problems are all designed to get our attention and help us avoid unnecessary trouble. Blank, 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 pay attention. Most of us have heard of the disease of leprosy. Uh, just a, an insidious, insidious disease Why? because it destroys the pain, the ability to sense pain. And and people lose their limbs because they they don't feel the pain, they don't feel the hurt, and and, and the injury progresses and in and, and eventually they, they lose fingers and toes and hands and limbs and such. One of the deadliest financial diseases people can get, much like leprosy physically, is credit credit. What leprosy is to the human body, I think credit is to our finances. It's a disease. Just like leprosy, you don't feel anything, so you think everything's okay. Credit is the same way. You think, well, it's it's okay. It doesn't matter what we do. I have credit. I have credit. Have you noticed how credit can mount up? We may be destroying ourselves. We may be destroying our future, But we keep getting those offers in the mail to increase our credit limit. And we go for it. As if it's something to be proud of. The banks and such tell us we're such wonderful people, we can go out and we can borrow the world. Hallelujah. Before we know it, we're way, way in debt. We discovered that two weeks ago when we talked about the subtlety of debt. I believe financial problems are God's way of saying to us, you are not on the right path. It's not rocket science, is it? In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, the writer tells us, God says, that he disciplines those he loves. He's not about to let you and I walk in rebellion and disobedience and get away with it. So he'll shut us down. How? Give us financial problems. God is behind, I, this is my proposal, God is behind our financial problems because He loves us. Sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? But that's the reality. I'm, not, I'm apparently not on the right path. I'm not making choices that honor God. I am not putting Him first, His kingdom and His righteousness. That's Malachi, Turn, or that's Haggai. Turn to Malachi, chapter 3. If in Haggai we get the picture of God being the one behind our financial problems, in Malachi we get the picture of God being the one who's behind our financial blessings. Read with me, beginning at verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. That's good news, isn't it? God is not capricious. He's not whimsical. He's he's not going to change his mind. He says, I'm steadfast, and so I'm not going to destroy you. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. "Return to me and I will return to you," says the Lord Almighty. Is that a, do you think that that's a, a, a contemporary word for the church today? Could we say this? That many have turned away from His decrees, have not kept them? You've got to be saying to the church, "Return to me and I'll return to you." Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think all of us, all of us, kind of get drift off, don't we? There's spiritual drift in our life. We get, we get distracted and, and so forth. God says, Come on back, get back here. So he asks him this rhetorical question, but you ask, How are we to return? Well, here's how, here's how you know you've returned. Will a man rob God? What a preposterous question. Who in the world, in their right mind, would sneak in to God's storehouse and try to rob him? And yet, he says, You rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? Now say these next four words with me. In tithes and offerings. Let's do it again. In tithes and offerings. So he says to them in verse 9, You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Now here's the solution, verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. Now, this is astounding. Most of us have read this passage a number of times, and we've heard it taught on again and again. But those four words, test me in this, are astounding. This is the only place in the entire Bible where God says, test me. Just try me. Just do this, and watch what I'll do. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, not the eyedropper of heaven, the floodgates of heaven, and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Wow. And then he says in verse 11, I will, I will prevent your car from breaking down. I'll keep your dryer from breaking. Dishwasher. Toaster oven. Microwave. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, I'm going to protect everything. You put your life in my hands and you watch how I'm, I'm going to guard all these peripherals, all these things. that that eat away at the edges of your life. And then, look at this, I love this part. (laughs) Excuse me, verse 12. And then that all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, people will look at your life, and they'll say, you are so blessed. How come you're so blessed? Well, I put God first. I put God first. I put God first. That's all he's saying. Isn't that cool? Don't miss this. God is in control. He is either the one behind our financial problems or he is the one behind our financial blessings. And guess who chooses which one he will be in our life? We do. We make the choice. We make the choice. Now, someone will undoubtedly object and say, well, that's the Old Testament. We're New Testament people. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, well, that's, that's Haggai, that's Malachi. You know, that, God's talking to Israel. That's Old Testament. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. It's in chapter 10, Paul warns the church, he warns you and I, to learn from Israel's history. In other words, when we read about their history, we read what the prophets say to the, to the people of Israel, we should, we should learn from them, not to repeat their mistakes. He says in verse 6, Now these things occurred as examples To keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So that we don't suffer uh, the same fate that they did. In other words, beloved, we just can't set aside the Old Testament and say that it's not relevant for us today as New Testament people, if you will. No, we need the whole Bible. The Bible stands as one unit, Old and New Testament So, if that's true, then we ask this question. Is tithing, then, just an Old Testament concept? And as New Testament people, uh, do we not have to tithe? That's the question we want to pose, because that's a question that's raised again and again and again. Now, if we accept that, that we don't have to as New Testament people, then we have to ask other questions. Let me pose this to you. Did you know that there are over 500 prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ? How many are interested in the second coming of Jesus Christ? Yeah. Now, if if we if we accept that that the Old Testament doesn't really have a bearing on our lives, it's not really relevant, then it would follow that those 500-plus prophecies regarding the second coming of Jesus would be invalid for us also as New Testament believers. Does that make sense? Now, that's absurd, isn't it? Do you know that the devil battles Christians? You know that? We're in spiritual warfare. But he battles Christians over two issues more than anything else. Now the question is why? And what are the two issues? Can you think of what the two fundamental, elementary issues are in a Christian's life that the, that the devil will battle you over more than any other issue? What is it? Baptism and tithing. Baptism and tithing. Now why? Why? Why would the devil battle me over those two issues more than over anything else? Because both are starting points in our walk of obedience with Jesus Christ. Both are starting points. In all the years I've been pastoring, I see this continually over and over and over again. Uh, Someone just comes to Christ, and I say, "All right, now, now you get baptized. Well, I'm not ready yet. What do you mean you're not ready? You just committed your life to Christ. Get baptized. We're commanded to be baptized. I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands in in this room of a number of people who put off baptism for one reason or another because, well, maybe I'm not ready. or I have to give a testimony. I'm not... When Jesus clearly says, you must be baptized. See, that's elementary. That's fundamental. That's at the very beginning of our walk. When you're baptized, you're you're making a public declaration. This is your, if you will, your initiation into the church. You stand up and say, I'm identifying with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Resurrection to new life. What a powerful testimony, right off the bat. You get baptized. That's why we baptize by immersion, because we take you down and hold you under there. <laughs> Signal of dying and being buried, and we raise you <gasps> to new life. <laughs> it's always very exciting. <laughs> Think about this. If the devil can mess people up at baptism at the beginning at the beginning, and keep them from obeying what God has said they were to do, then is it not possible then for him to keep them messed up in their walk? If they don't start right, if they don't start well, if they shrink back for whatever reason, and there's no commitment that way, how easy is it for him to keep them walking in disobedience? If that's the case, then he's won, hasn't he? He's one right at the beginning. The same thing is true of tithing. Think about this. Tithing is elementary. Baptism is elementary. Tithing is, is just a starting point for believers. Just like baptism. It's not the end point. Now, over the years, I've taught, and many of you are aware, uh, this, the principle of sacrificial giving. And for a lot of people a tithe or a tenth if you will is a sacrifice. It's meant to be that. But that's the beginning point. We don't stop there. If God indeed prospers us, then we what? We can we can give more, can't we? There should be no limit. You can't outgive God. You've heard that before. But it really is reflective of a heart that really is is given to him, really does trust him, and really is bold in that particular arena. So if the devil can hook you by getting you not to tithe, and he can get you to disobey God in that area of your life, then he can rob you of all the blessings that God wants to give you. Think about this. Once the devil gets you to disobey God in one area of your life, it's much easier for him to get you to disobey God in other areas of your life. And what about these two fundamental areas, baptism and tithing? Just getting started at the beginning of my Christian life. These are the beginning points. If we don't start well, what's going to happen to us as we try to run the race? If we stumble out of the, out of the starting gate... How will we finish well? I remember when, uh, when I first started coming here as a new believer, and, and uh, I didn't know about tithing. I, this was all new to me. I, it was, everything was all new to me, the Bible, everything. And so I was in a Bible study, and, and uh, they were talking about the subject of tithing, and, and I, you know, I didn't know what, I'd never heard the word, I, I didn't know what it meant. I'm just I'm absolutely clueless. And so I listened, and I began to put it all together through the conversation, because I didn't want to look too stupid. You know, you don't want to ask a stupid question. What is that? So it became very apparent to me what it was. So I did ask a question. I said, by the way, is, when, you, when you guys give, that's, that's, that's 10%, right? Yes. And I said, is that on the gross or the net? <laughs> Which betrays something, doesn't it? And, of course, they told me it's on the gross. I said, my word. (laughs) I will never forget writing my very first tithe check. Never forget this. I was excited, but writing it, I went, whoa. Because, you know, you you just don't exactly know what's going to happen to it. Sprout wings and fly away. So I wrote that check and I came to church and I you know, put in a little envelope and, and filled out the blanks and stuff. And in and, and, and those earlier days, we would pass the trays down through the rows and, and so I'm watching and here comes a tray and I drop it in there it goes. <laughs> it, was, it was that quick. <laughs> and then the next week, here comes that tray again. It's a, it was a new phenomenon for me. But I was determined... Oh, and, and this, this, this was great, too. In the Bible study, I, I asked this question. I said, now, now, everybody does that, right? Everybody does it. Okay, well, I don't want to be left out. If everybody does it, I'm going to do it, too. Of course, later on, I found out that not everybody did it. Amazing. Turn to Genesis chapter 4. <clears throat> I want you to see where this actually began. Some people think that tithing began with the law and with Israel. It actually began way back in the beginning. It began with Cain and Abel, interestingly. In Genesis chapter 4, let's read the first eight verses with me. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, interesting phrase, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Now notice the kind of lack of definition in that phrase. In the course of time. So it was apparently a, a, a point in time where they were supposed to bring some offering. Now we don't know if that information was given to them from their parents, or God communicated it to them somehow. But they knew there was a a point in time, a place, and a particular offering that was to be offered. And we see that reflected in, in how God responds. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought what? Fat portions from some of the firstborn. Or the New American Standard says he brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. The fat portions were the very, very best. I mean, if I'm going uh, to have a steak or something, I want a nice fatty one, marbled. That's where the flavor is. I have a hamburger. We, uh, we buy the Costco hamburgers with the fat in them, not the other ones. Why? Because that's where the flavor is. We understand that. Not that God's concerned with flavor, but but the fat represents the best portion. And so he brought the very best. He brought the firstlings, the first fruits, if you will, as opposed to what Cain brought. So they're supposed to bring the first fruits. Now, let's read on. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Apparently something's wrong there. He brought the wrong offering? Possibly. So Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. Now look at verse 6. tells us a lot. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right... Will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must master it. Don't let it get you. Do what's right. Repent. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Cain got mad killed his brother and he killed his brother over an offering the first murder in the history of mankind was over an offering and beloved not much has changed people are still struggling over offerings and over giving to god you imagine that man hasn't changed much has he since the very beginning in that sense Turn to Genesis chapter 14. A few pages over. We see Abram. Abram has a nephew, Lot, who has been carried off by some pagan kings. Abram is is uh, alerted to this and goes after them and rescues his nephew and defeats the kings. He comes back Verse 17, after Abram (coughs) returned from defeating the kings, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivers your enemies into your hand. And so now... Here's the king of Salem uh, telling Abram that God has delivered you. God has provided for you. God has rescued you. God has given you this great victory. Blesses him. And notice this. Then Abram gave him a fifth, a percent. What? He gave him a tenth of everything. If you go to Genesis chapter 28, you see Jacob. Jacob's about to meet Uncle Laban. He doesn't know it yet. But before he leaves, he promises God, he says, if you'll bless me, I'll give you a tenth of everything I ever receive." Where'd they get this principle of a tenth? I, I suspect it goes right, right back to the very beginning with Cain and Abel. Somehow, God must have communicated to him, this is the appropriate offering. Turn to Matthew, chapter 5. In Matthew, chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells his hearers he's not come to abolish the law. He's come rather to fulfill the law. And he says to them, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now look at verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses you might want to underline that word your righteousness surpasses that of the pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven now the the pharisees the teachers of the law they they kept a strict external righteousness didn't they the letter of the law and in fact jesus in another place points out he says to them you have you tithe your mint your dill and your cumin. You you tithe you're so meticulous that you even tithe your spices. He says, You should do this. But while doing that, you've neglected the weightier issues of the law, mercy and justice and, and so forth. So the point is, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, All right, these guys are exhibit a a, a righteousness. Your righteousness must surpass theirs. So my question is: Is Jesus raising the bar or is he lowering the bar? He raises the bar. So while the starting point for us is this is this tithe, is this ten percent, it doesn't stay there. He raises the bar. There should be no limit. How many times should we forgive? No limit. Peter says, should I forgive seven times? Being very magnanimous about it. And Jesus says what? No. Seventy times, seven times. In other words, there should be no limit to our forgiveness. Oh man, that'll test you, won't it? See, he raised, at every place you turn, Jesus continues to raise the bar. Our righteousness must surpass that. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Let me share with you a contrast, another contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God required animal sacrifices, didn't he? We were back in the book of Leviticus last year, which we will get back to at some point, I don't know when. Some of you are wondering, you're holding your breath waiting. God required animal sacrifices. But in the New Testament, we offer what kind of sacrifices? Romans 12.1. Living sacrifices, right? See, there are still sacrifices. They're just not dead animals anymore. There's a life, our lives, everything. And, and for, for most all of us, our lives translate to time and dollars, don't they? Time and dollars. It's all about attitude. It's all about attitude. Our first week when we started this series, we talked about what's our attitude toward the sovereignty of God. Do I really believe God is sovereign? Do I live as if he's absolutely sovereign over every detail of my life? Our second study was, had to do with our attitude towards debt and the subtlety of debt. Do I realize how uh, destructive debt is and can be? And now, uh, what's our attitude about this centrality of tithing in my life? I believe the single greatest thing you can do to turn your finances around is to make the choice to start trusting God and start tithing. If you do, it will change your life. It will absolutely change your life. Now let me give you some principles about tithing. <clears throat> Number one... The Bible says the tithe belongs to the Lord, not to us. It belongs to Him. In Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30, God says a tithe of everything belongs to the Lord. Now a tithe, again, is a tenth. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, God says, bring the tithe to me, to my storehouse. It belongs to Him. And to underscore that, you go to the seventh chapter of the book of Joshua. How many remember what happened in that chapter? Anybody remember? We meet a guy by the name of Achan. My Achan back. Now, the scene is Joshua has taken over the mantle of leadership from Moses. He's the one who's going to take the people into the promised land, and they're going to conquer the land and they're going to conquer the cities as they take the land. What's the very first city they must conquer when they come into the promised land? Jericho. What does God say about Jericho? It belongs to me. Jericho, the first city, is the tithe of the land. God says, everything in Jericho belongs to me. It's holy to me. Don't you touch any of it for yourself. The tithe of everything belongs to the Lord. Now, so they go in. They conquer Jericho. They have this great victory. Everybody's celebrating. One guy steals some of God's stuff. Puts it under his pillow. No one knows. Who no one will know. Ah, there's one person who knows. Who is that? God says, That's, this stuff's mine. So Achan takes this. He puts it under his pillow. He thinks he's getting away with something. The very next thing, the very next city that Israel is supposed to go attack and capture is a little tiny podunk hill town called Ai. They should be able to take the city in their sleep. So they go up there, and they get their behinds beat. And they're chased out. And so now Joshua's going, Oh, what's happened? What happened? We should have won this. We should have destroyed that. And so now Joshua begins to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord says, There's some sin in the camp. And so then begins a process of elimination They start with all the tribes and the clans and the families, and they, they, and and God brings it right down to Achan. Reminds us, He says, every hidden thing will be brought to light. Achan is identified, and Achan is punished. The tragedy is that he, his whole family, everything he paid a horrible price were destroyed. It belongs to God. It doesn't belong to us, the tithe. It's His. Now, everything is His. Isn't it amazing that He just wants a small portion and gives us the rest? Number two, we are to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Accent on the word bring. That's what Malachi 3.10 says. We're to bring it, not mail it in, not send it with someone else. We're to bring it. Someone suggested that we have at the entrance to the auditorium two of those credit card things that you you come in and you can slide your credit card in. It kind of loses something. People said, "Why? Why do we? Why do you make us get out of our chairs and, and come up the front? I want you to bring your offering." There's something to getting up and coming to the altar, if you will, and bringing your offering. As opposed to sliding it through the thing. It loses something in the translation, doesn't it? Why does God want us to bring it? He wants us to be, He wants us to assemble together. He says elsewhere in Hebrews, He says, Do not forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some. It's imperative that we're together, that we encourage one another. Just, I'm just encouraged to see you. I love watching you and greeting you coming up the stairs. I love high-fiving your kids. Some of you. He wants us to encourage one another. He wants us to meet together. He wants us to pray for one another. We're built up just by by the, uh, the presence of one another. Bringing your offering ensures the fact that you're here. And so we bring... Our offerings. We bring our tithes. And when do we bring them? On the first day of each week, Paul says. Sunday, today. By the way, if you're a parent, I want to encourage you you bring the tithe. Don't hand it to your kids and have your kids do it. Husbands, don't have your wife do it, you do it. Or bring your wife. Together, you bring your tithe. What an object lesson for the children to watch dad lead in these spiritual disciplines. Step it up. And by the way, the storehouse is the place where we are cared for and fed. If I can use this analogy, and you've probably heard it before, you don't go down to Burger King and eat and say, you know, I appreciate the food, but I'm going to go to Taco Bell and give my money. No, the storehouse, we're to bring the tithe to the storehouse, that's the place where we're cared for and where we're fed. Number three, we're to bring the whole tithe. The whole tithe, all 10%. Now, sometimes we make excuses, and I've done this, and, I, and I, I've had to repent of this. We, we feel sorry for people because they're all messed up financially, and, they, and 10% is just a mind-blower, and there's just no way they can do it. We say, well, just start with half a percent. Just start with 1%. I've done that, and, and God has rebuked me for that. God does not say, start with 1%. God does not say, work on it. He doesn't say, work it up. He doesn't say, pray about it. He doesn't say, see if somehow you can fit it into your budget. No, God says, clearly, bring the whole tithe. When I saw that, it jumped off the page at me. And in me telling other people, feeling sorry for them, thinking I'm being a compassionate pastor, well, you know, just just bring a little bit. I'm doing them a disservice. I'm doing them a disservice. They may have to restructure their entire financial arena to make sure that they get the tithe first. And in so doing, I'm saying to them, you're trusting God. You're putting your life in God's hands. And He is trustworthy. By the way, partial obedience won't bring partial blessing. If you think, well, I'll just obey God a little bit and that'll bring me a little bit of blessing, sorry, it doesn't work that way. Partial obedience is total disobedience. Write that down. Partial obedience is total disobedience. Let me illustrate this for you. Ladies, those of you who are married, what if your husband goes on a trip and comes home and says, I was 99% faithful to you when I was gone. Is that something you'd like to hear? No, of course not. 99% faithfulness is 100% unfaithfulness, isn't it? And by the way, delayed obedience is also disobedience. James 4.17 says, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Don't delay it. And so we bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Number four. We are not free, this is important, we are not free to designate it, divide it or direct it wherever we want. Who does it belong to? God. The job of the leaders of the church, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5:17, who direct the affairs of the church. That's the job of the elders and leaders of the church, to direct where the resources, the tithe goes. Acts chapter 4, verse 35 tells us, the apostles directed the finances of the early church. So what if I want to give to a special, special mission? Do I, can I divide up my tithe and give it over? No, the tithe belongs to God. That comes to the storehouse. If you go back to Malachi, Malachi says, you're robbing me in tithes and offerings. So if you have a special arena you want to give a special gift to, that's where the offering comes in. You make an offering for that. It's tithes and offerings. So we have to get this, I think, get a hold of this in our heads and in our hearts. God is the one who's behind our financial problems. God is the one who is behind our financial blessings. If you go back again to Malachi chapter 3, he says, test me. Test me in this and see if I won't open the windows of heaven, pour out a blessing so great you will not be able to contain it. I don't think any of us have a concept of what that's like. I mean, is that cool? He'll open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing. Now, obviously... It's a that's a a figure of speech, but the point is, it's it's painting a picture. Can you think of a better deal than that? A better deal. Who was the last person that said to you, "Hey, do do this, and I'm going to bless you out of your socks"? Remember, we are the ones. We are the ones who determine whether God is behind our burdens or He's behind our blessings. We're the ones who determine whether He's behind our problems or our prosperity. It boils simply down to this. The choice is ours. What is our attitude about these things? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you again.